afternoon, church. My name is Brett. I'm pastor of this people. It's good to see all of you, but especially our guests. Welcome. Glad to have you here. Happy Mother's Day to, to all the mamas. Thank you for all you do. And thank you for who you are. <clears throat> and to all of our single mothers who have children still in the home, there's a special gift out there for you in the lobby at our reception area. We really appreciate all the effort that you put forth to being both mom and dad. And to the mother that is very important in my life, Cynthia. Happy Mother's Day, dear. Love you. <laughs> Cynthia has educated all of our children. Um, she's a fabulous woman. She's a better Christian than I am. And um, we just had our second born graduate from college. So that's two down, five to go. She's homeschooled every one of them. She's an amazing mama, amazing mama. Not mother of the year, not decade, but eons, mother of the eons. Love you. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> We're going to suspend our study on stewardship to talk about mothers today. So, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> turn with me over to the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 2. The title of this message is Jochebed, A Mother's Faith. And we're going to look at Exodus chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, and then Numbers chapter 26, verse 59. Exodus 2, verse 1. <coughs> Now a man from the house of Levi went and married a daughter of Levi. The woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that that child was beautiful, she hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, she got, a, got him a wicker basket and covered it with tar and pitch. And then she put the child into it and set it among the reeds by the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to find out what would happen to him. Verse 5. The daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the Nile, with her maidens walking alongside the Nile, and she saw the basket among the reeds and sent her maid, and she brought it to her. Verse 6. And when she opened it, and she saw the child, and behold, the boy was crying. And she had pity on him and said, This one is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call a nurse from from the Hebrew women so that she may nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go ahead. So the girl went and called the child's mother. Verse 9. Then Pharaoh said, Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child. Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. And the child grew, and she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. And she named him Moses and said, Because I drew him out of the water. Numbers 26, verse 59. Numbers 26, 59. The name of Amram's wife was Jochebed, the daughter of Levi, who was born to Levi in Egypt. And she bore to Amram, Aaron, and Moses, and their sister, Miriam. Lord, help us as we study. <clears throat> the context of this passage is that the Israelites were slaves in Egypt. 
Amram and Jochebed were just a part of the numerous people of Israel that were numbered as slaves. And the Egyptians were so concerned about the population of the Israelites growing that they said, we've got to do something about this lest the Israelites outnumber us as Egyptians. And so they said, I want every male child that comes out of a Hebrew womb to be killed. Now, the way they would monitor that is that the midwives were Egyptians, and midwives would help the Hebrew woman give birth. And the midwives were then, if they saw that the child was a boy, were then to inform the authorities that were Egyptian, and the authorities then would come and kill the child. Horrible. Horrible. It says, though, that the midwives feared God, and they would not do this, and they would always tell the authorities, you know, these Hebrew women are fast birthers. Every time we try to get there, whoops, it's over. So we don't know what it was. The baby's out. And so they, they just kind of lied. You know, sometimes lying is good. I don't know what to say. <clears throat> it's just true. It's just true. Lying is horrible when you're trying to cover yourself. But when you are trying to produce a greater good, and this was a greater good, lying is the best thing to do. If someone's hiding out in your house and it's the Underground Railroad, you lie. If it's Nazi Germany and you have Jews hiding out in your house, you lie because there's a greater good. Anyway, that's another sermon. (laughs) Rahab lied about the spies. And she was blessed by God to be included in the line of the Messiah. All she did was lie. That's all she did was lie. Say, nope, they're not here. They're not here. I'm getting too far away from my passage. So the, the Hebrews were growing in population. And here we have Amram and Jochebed. And before we get into Jacob's life, I I just want to amplify the fact that these two young parents were amazing. We don't have any techniques that they employed. There's no detail about how they parented. All we have is the fruit. These two people produced Moses, Aaron, and Mary. They may have produced more, but these of note. The three people who would run the entire nation... Moses was the judge, the political ruler, and the one who would speak on behalf of God to the people, the prophet. Aaron was the high priest. He was in charge of all the spiritual activity for the entire nation. And Miriam just did whatever she wanted to do. When they crossed over from the Red Sea and the Egyptians were drowned, Moses wrote a song, and, but, but it was Miriam who led the Israelites in singing and dancing. She was in charge of all the outward worship and the arts. She, this family... All came from two parents. Amazing. Sometimes you don't know who's in your house, parents. Sometimes you do not know who's in your house. Having said that, Jacobed exhibited extraordinary faith. And I want to talk to you on five levels of what she did. One, her willingness to birth. Two, her watchfulness and protectiveness. Three, her hope and release. Four, her happiness in restoration. And five, her hope in release. 
her willingness to birth. I talked to couples that are kind of newly married. And, you know, they've been married three, four years or so. And so I'm kind of, you know, fishing around a little bit. So, like, when's the first one coming? And well, you know, we're not settled in our careers yet. And we don't have the, the finances and the house. We're just trying to get everything in order so that when a child comes, we have it together. So, okay. And I very nicely and as sensitively as I know how pastorally minister to them and let them know that whatever time a child comes, they will wreck your life. It doesn't matter whether you have all the money in the world, they will spend it. If you have all the nice things in the house, they will break them. If you think you have room, they will take it up. Your children will mess up your lives. At no point is it ever comfortable to bring another person into your world. At no point. Do do you hear personal reflection in my tone? So I tell them, go ahead and start now. Just start now. Get it out of the way. Because it's not going to be any better later. And then when you really get down to it, sometimes you're thinking, well, I don't know if I really want to bring a child into this world. It's really messed up. I mean, it seems like everything's going against the church and it's hard to find a good church. And when, you, when that church is really going, then they have difficulties trying to get established and going. And then there's so many churches that are just flowing along with the world and you don't know who to believe and who not to believe. And this world is really messed up. You got terrorists, you got religions that don't like Christianity that are trying to stamp it out. I don't know if it's a, the right thing to bring a child into this mess. Could it have been any worse than Amram and Jochebed's circumstances? They're birthing a slave. A slave. There had to be conversations all around Israel. Why do we want to birth kids into this? We don't like our own lives. Is there any reason to bring somebody else into our misery? Save the fact that that somebody else might save us from our misery. You don't know who's in your house. There could not have been a more inopportune time to give birth to a child than in Amram and Jochebed's situation. And yet they did so three times. And the third time literally was a charm, if you will. And God decided, I'm going to make this one unique. Oh, she was willing to give birth, even though the circumstances were not ideal. And parents, you are, you are God's best opportunity to help change the world and make it better. Somebody's got to do something. Somebody has to stand up and say no. Somebody's got to point the direction in the right way. It might as well be somebody from your loins. You love God, you go to church, you read your Bible, you do everything you possibly can to raise your child well. You are God's best opportunity of raising somebody who can make this place better. So, have babies. Get married first, have babies. And have a lot of them. Speaking from experience, seven of them. 
Joseph Bryan, Garrison Meredith, Tellers, Brook, and Grant. Happy house do we have. And see, you, you don't know this. Amram and Jochebed had, had Moses. But then Moses had kids. And his kids had kids. My kids will outdo me. Not, in the, not just in the aggregate sense that the seven of them will be more productive than my individual life. But individually, they're going to outdo me because they got a better platform than I did earlier. I didn't even get right till I was 20. I mean, my parents were fabulous. Joe and Vi, amazing. And I can superimpose some stuff here. It was not the best opportune time. It was not the, 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 the right circumstance to birth a black child in the 1960s into this world. It wasn't a lot of fun being me. The whole civil rights thing was just getting going. And things had not changed. I realized that what I experienced is a part of your history books. And many of you are just realizing this because you've read it. But I lived through it. But Vi and Joe said, in 1960, we, we need to have a baby. And I, I don't know if they knew this, that this one can make a difference. But I came, came out in December of 1960, and maybe I've made a little difference. Just a little. This is a southern state, you know. Did, did, did you know Virginia was a southern state? Did, did, did you know Virginia was the seat of the Confederacy? A hundred miles south, just a hundred, two hours south, was the seat of the Confederacy. And even today, if you go to Richmond, you go a hundred miles south, but 30 years back, it's a different world in Richmond. It's a different world, and I love Richmond, but it's a different world. And what we have been able to... All you white folk, you do know I'm black, right? You do know your pastor's black. What we've been able to produce, you Asians, you know I'm black. What we've been able to produce here is miraculous. Now, if you go to California, they've been doing this for decades. If you don't have a church that looks like this, something's wrong with you. California's just different. But this is rarely seen in the South. Rarely. And it's because Joe and Vi brought up Brett in a certain way. They thought it was a good idea to move us from the inner city in 1966 out to white suburbia because they wanted Brett to be safer. <laughs> okay, I'm, I'm trying to figure, is this new math? Is this new math? Ah, uh, yeah. I think I'd rather be with people who look like me that, that, that might be dangerous than all the people not liking me where I'm going to. We broke the color barrier in our neighborhood. There wasn't a black family ever that lived there. Couldn't, a realtor would not sell to us. We bought from an individual owner. And our, a cross was burned in our neighborhood because we were there. I went to grade school and was the first black kid that, that ever went there. And I didn't have a friend for two years. Not a friend. I had an angel of a first grade teacher, Mrs. Haig came by every week and gave my mother a progress report about how I was doing. I wasn't doing well, but she cared about me that much to come by my home personally and tell my mama how I was doing and then go over the material that I didn't get in class because everybody hated me and was looking at me strange and I would stand on the 
playground and have nobody to play with. She came over and taught me my lessons with my mother there. Now, my mother was a teacher. So she could go ahead and take the lessons and the mama could teach me. But this was my life. I'm not asking for any sympathy. I'm just giving you facts. Our house was egged. Our cars were destroyed. Came out one morning. Got a beautiful 1964 Mustang. Vintage, ragtop, cherry orange, gorgeous. Came out one morning. They had taken a sledgehammer to it. Ripped the top, pulled out the seats, slit the tires. Car was totaled. Totaled. Now, immaturity, we were happy. We didn't have to go to school that day. But (laughs) our car was destroyed. This is how I lived. And I was called everything in the book. Yet my mother and father never said a cross word about anybody. Only conciliatory were they. Helped me love in the midst of pain. Not knowing that Brett was going to do this. Sometimes you don't know. The child that you're raising, you just don't know. Amram and Jochebed were courageous and said, we're going to birth a slave, I know. But maybe... Maybe he'll help us. Maybe he'll help us. And then she was watchful and and very protective. Now, it says that she saw that the child was beautiful and hid him for three months. Now, I'm convinced that there's no cause and effect in this, that the child was no more beautiful than any other child she had. I mean, is there a mama that thinks her child's ugly? It just doesn't happen. All mamas think their child, ch- children are just gorgeous. So it's not that Moses was feature-wise in appearance any more beautiful than Aaron or Miriam. But there was something about him that she noticed that was not perceived naturally. In fact, the word tob, which is beautiful there in Hebrew, actually can be translated situated for the circumstance well. She saw that there was something in this child that was unique. And as a result of seeing what she saw, she had hope that this child did not have to be a slave and and might, might be the one who could make other people not be slaves. This child was beautifully situated. And parents, moms, you've got to see things that are not naturally perceived. You've got to hear from God about the destiny that is in your baby. You've got to see the beauty of why they were created in this generation at this time for these people. You can't just go on the natural. I love my baby and they're just like everybody else and you want to provide. All those things need to be done. But if you want to have faith that allows you to get through the stuff later, when you see stuff that doesn't allow you to have faith that God will do anything in the life of your child, meaning everything about what they're doing and what they're believing and what they're saying is going contrary to the will of Almighty God. What do you hold on to then if you don't see things that have not been naturally perceived? That's the only thing that anchors you when you see everything else that's telling you God is not interested in this child or this child is not interested in God. The world will lie to you with facts. The world will lie to you with facts. But God has a truth that is greater than the facts. Are you listening to me? You can't just judge by what you see. She saw that the child was wonderfully fit for this situation. And she hit him. Now she didn't hide him because of that. She hit him because she didn't want him killed. 
But you can only hide a, a baby so long before somebody realizes this child ought not be here. And you talk about the war of soul that Jacobet had to go through. See, when a baby's zero to three months, they don't cry it real loud. <coughs> Pretty much like that. But when they get three to six months, they let you know they are a full human being. So you got to do something, and she realizes this. The most dangerous place for my baby is with me. Somebody's going to hear him cry. And they're going to know it was, I birthed him within the time period where he should be dead. And they're going to come after him. Now at this point, Jacobet is someplace around, we believe, the age of 22. See, mamas had babies very young because they were married very young. Parents would put them together. There was no dating. There was no romance. There was no getting together and seeing if you like one another. Parents just made contracts with each other and their kids married one another. And generally, the, the, the young man may have only had a couple of conversations with the young woman before they said, I do. And the young woman was generally pretty young, between 16 and 18 when she got married. And they immediately started having children. So we know Miriam was the eldest. I read to you the passage in Numbers because that details for you the order of children being born. Now, if it's a sister, meaning a, a young woman who was born, a, a girl baby, they're always mentioned last if there are brothers. It's just the way the Bible did it. Culturally, that's the way it happened. But the brothers are always mentioned in birth order, not in order of importance with respect to ministry or status. So we see in Numbers 26 that... Miriam was mentioned last because she was a sister, but Aaron was mentioned before Moses, which meant Aaron was born before Moses, which meant Moses was the baby. Because we know Miriam followed the, 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 the crib, the little basket, down the river. And she was 12 years Moses senior. So Moses was the baby brother. Here we've got a circumstance where Jochebed is doing all she possibly can to try to figure out how do I provide protection for my child. And, and she's saying that the worst possible place is for him to be with me. And so she, she does something that's beautiful. But you know, you know it's really a bad situation when your best, your best possibility is to send your kid down the river. To put him in a basket and send him down the river. That's the best option. It's a bad day when that's your best option. But she makes this basket, tar and pitch, does everything she can to make it watertight, puts a baby in it, puts a cover on it, puts it in the Miriam walks down, Pharaoh's daughter comes. And Pharaoh's daughter comes with the maids, the maids pull it out, baby. Uh, and there's Miriam. May I help you? May I help you? Here we have a hope in release. She was protective. She hid him for three months, did everything she possibly could. She was watchful and that she believed that there was something special, but she realized, I can't do this by myself. I cannot keep him here without doing, without, without literally sending him into the hands of Almighty God. Because when she, when she put him in the river, she wasn't putting him in the river. She was putting him into the hands of God. Yes, it was wet. But every day she had to pray, Lord, don't let hippos get this. I know I need to do this, but don't let alligators get them. This is a dangerous environment. 
Please, God, protect my baby. This was her best option. Pharaoh picks up the, Pharaoh's daughter picks up the child. And there's Miriam. May I help you? Here is the beauty. That when you are watchful and when you are praying, and you, we don't have all the details of Jacobed's prayer, but we know that she was faith-filled in her, in her decision to put this baby in the Nile. That there was something about her that said, I know my God will protect my child like this. All of a sudden, Miriam says, can I help you? And, and Pharaoh's daughter says, yes. Mary says, maybe I can get a, a, a Hebrew mama to, you know, nurse for you. Good idea. And she goes and gets a mama, which is obviously Moses' mama. And, and, and then Pharaoh's daughter says to Moses' mama, I'll pay you when you're, when you're ready. Now, mama, if you can get that work, get that work, get that work. Here's a mama that was paid to be a mama to her own baby. When we have dedicatory moments up here for parents that give their children to God, it's more than just a formal religious moment. It's a real moment. And literally, this is the first, first kind of dedication. Lord, here, do something. Do what I can't do. I'm doing the best I can, but... I can't do it anymore like this. Do something. Parents were asking you to give your children to the Lord. And just like Jacobed, when you walk out, he gives them back to you. You get them back. But because of your dedication, you get more back. When we dedicated our children to the Lord, every one of them, God then gave us information about how to raise them. We got revelation. We were profited by giving him our kids. He paid us with insight about what we needed to do with each one of them. Oh, we had family devotions that were foreign to, to either of our upbringings. Vi and Joe were, were just amazing people. Dennis, my dad was, my mother was a teacher. Amazing people. And I'm so glad I'm, I'm their boy. But they didn't know anything about how to disciple me. My dad wasn't a believer. My mom just was somebody who drug us to church and she was doing the right thing. But she didn't know how to read her Bible or, or how to interpret it. We never did a Bible study growing up. We were just kind of religious a little. So I had nothing to pull from. And when I dedicated my children to God, I was literally saying, help me because I'm not smart enough. I don't have all the experience. I got nothing to give these kids. In fact, my background is a mess. I should be a stat. God, you're going to have to help me with this. I don't know what it means to be a great dad. And all of a sudden, he profited me with the ability to do what he called me to do. He paid me with insight and revelation so I could raise my children according to how they should be raised in, in his will. When you dedicate them to God, he assists you in the process of parenting. We did family devotions. They were so much fun. We did them for over a decade. Meet together and I'd share stories. Cynthia would share, we'd pray. Kids would all have to share information that they got from their own devotional life or from the children's church. And it was a great moment for our family to be together. And they didn't even realize they were going to church. They didn't know they were going to church. This is just what our family did. And they loved it. It was a blast every time we got together. They didn't know they were being trained to speak in front of people. But they'd have to speak about what they learned in their Bible in front of all of us. And so for, decade, for a whole decade, every one of them had to share what God was doing in their life. 
So then now when they get up in front of folk, ain't no big deal. They've been doing it all their life. Cynthia would pray and, and lead these children into a deeper relationship with the Lord on a regular basis. I would sing to them most nights as they went to bed. And not just sing to them, I would worship as they went to sleep. And so the last thing they heard was Daddy singing a hymn or a song that we had sung in church as they went off into their never, never land of slumber. I'd tell them stories, both Bible stories and fictional ones. I was a superhero in most of them. (laughs) The Black Tornado. I'm serious, that was me. I'd sweep away evil with my wind power. I'm serious. Ask him. They're right back there. They know the black tornado. He was the best. Superman would ask the black tornado advice. That's, that's how good the black tornado was. <laughs> God helped us so much. We didn't know what we were doing, but he profited me with information in order to do what he had called me to do. When you dedicate them to God, he gives them back to you and says, here, here's more. Hope and release. Happy in restoration, was she? She got her child back. She got paid to do what she was supposed to do anyway. What a great time. What is it fabulous? <laughs> and then reality sets in. Gosh, I've only got this child for a little bit. It's Pharaoh's daughter now. I'm basically a babysitter. In about three years, I got to give him over. Oh, the second release had to be harder than the first. It's one thing to give him, give your child into the hands of God into circumstances unknown. It's another thing to give him into the hands of the world where you know the circumstances. He's going to be He's going to be a son of a pharaoh, a prince, over the people who are oppressing us? I'm sending my child to the world? Lord, is this, is this your best plan? The second release is always harder than the first. When you come and dedicate your children, he gives them back to you. You've got time to raise them. It's beautiful. But then there comes a point where you really got to say Bye. You send them off into the world. Whether it's the world of school, whether it's the world of, of their, their next venture, whether it's college, whether it's professional life, you send them. And it's, it's a little bit disconcerting because you don't know what they're going to experience out there. And with Jacobed, it had to be more disconcerting than with anybody else because she was sending her son into the household that was directly responsible for her oppression. And, and this one was going to learn the ways of that kingdom that oppresses her well. And he may never know anything about his Jewish heritage. Moses' lights didn't even start coming on until he was 40. Which means what? Jochebed was in her 60s. So for, for most of her adult life, all she has known is her son being a part of the world system 
and being a part of the oppressive kingdom that is driving her people into the ground with no hope for change. And I imagine all of her friends were saying, I thought, I thought this boy was going to be a plant. I thought he was going to like be an advocate for us and do something to help us. This was a, all you've done is make our lives worse. Jochebed had to think, did I create somebody to oppress me? Did I make my life more inconvenient by bringing this child into the world? And listen, if you haven't had at least the thought that maybe it wasn't a good idea to have one of your babies, it's because you haven't parented long enough yet. <laughs> at some point, they're going to do something so stupid that makes you say, God, you sure this was your best idea? This one here, man, I don't know. Wow, really? Those children at some point, especially in their teenage years, make you want to give not just a piece of your mind to them, but all of it. They drive you to think, what's wrong with you? Who were your parents? They switched you at birth. They had to. Something happened in the, in the, in the nursery. What's wrong with you? Jochebed had to think. What have I produced? This wasn't, this wasn't my idea at all of why we saved him. Why you saved him, oh God. He's oppressing us. He may not be cracking the whip, but he's a part of the decision-making process that pushes us in the dirt every day, and he's not helping us. And I produce something that's making it worse, not better. There are so many parents that find themselves in that revolving door of self-reflection, wondering, what did I do wrong? Where did he go wrong? Why is she this way? Is there any hope? And that's why you have to have that moment of, this is a child situated well. You've got to have a word from Almighty God that anchors you, lest the circumstances of this world draw you away from reality. Are you listening to me, mamas? Daddies, the circumstances that you see, your eyes will lie to you, your ears will lie to you. The circumstances of this world will draw you away from the reality of what God said. Now, I don't know whether Jochebed and Amram ever got to see the reality of what Moses became. He was 80 when he answered his call. We know, we know Aaron was 83. That's how we know he was a middle child because it says he was 83. And we know Miriam was the eldest. 80 when he answered the call. That would have made Jochebed and Amram in their early hundreds. So they may have been some of the people of whom the writer of Hebrews said they died without receiving the promise. But they died in faith. They may have never lived long enough to see what Moses became. But I have to believe that every day she warded off the thoughts of doubt and unbelief with, with knowing God saved him for something better than this. God saved him for something better than this. And her intercession over the span of her life produced that boy. The savior of his people. The deliverer of a nation. Mamas, don't you ever give up. Your children will make you go crazy. Drive you up a wall. <laughs> 
But don't you ever give up. And don't give in to the present circumstances that make you fly off the handle, make you lose control. Because every time you lose control with your children, it's evidence that you don't believe. I'll close with this. The disciples were told by Jesus, get in the boat, we're going to the other side. They got in the boat. Halfway across, a huge storm just came up out of no place. Massive. So massive that the disciples were bailing water and they said, we're going to die to Jesus who was sleeping in the hull unconcerned and mad at Jesus that he was not helping to bail. These were seasoned fishermen, thought they were going to die. They'd been on this sea all their lives. This storm was the worst they had ever experienced. And they said, we're going to die. Do you not care, Jesus, that we're perishing? Jesus got up. He went to the bow of the boat. And this is my English version, translation of the Greek. He looked at the winds and waves and went, shh. Immediately, the wind stopped and the waves became calm. Literally, the Greek says, he said, be still. No, no yelling, no forcefulness, just be still. See, the, the, sometimes it's not how, how boisterous you are. If, if, if there's weight behind your words, you don't need to yell. And Christ's words were so weighty that they made the sea do this. Every wave just had to stop. And it made the waves do this. You don't need to holler and scream and lose your mind. You do not need to lose your mind. Why? Because you realize your child is beautifully situated for this circumstance. And whatever they're going through now does not have to make you lose your salvation. Put your Christianity on the shelf in order to make your point. Remember, God disciplines us that we might share in his holiness. He never loses his cool. He never gets out of control. I'm not speaking from a perspective of perfection in this area. I have blown it from time to time, more times than I'd like to say, and my children are right back here to testify. But I'm telling you that I've grown as a parent in understanding that God disciplines us that we might share in his holiness. It's not just that we might become something that we're not, although that's true, but it's that we might understand what holiness looks like in the face of chaos. How God controls himself when he disciplines us, it allows us a picture of what life is to be when people who have faith have faith in what he said and therefore do not need to lose their heads in the midst of very difficult circumstances, but keep them because they know he said it, therefore it's going to come to pass. So what does this circumstance have to do with what God said? Effectively, Jesus said this to the fellows in the boat. Um, because when, when, when he said, shh, be still, he looked at them and said, where's your faith? Effectively, he said this. Now, when we got in the boat and I told you what we're going to do, what did I say? You said we're going to the other side. So what did the storm have to do with that? I said we were going to the other side. So what did the storm have to do with that? Why were you so... What you should have been doing is... Got, you should have gotten the blanket with me. What does the present circumstance have to do with what God said regarding this child is beautifully situated for this generation? 
Don't lose your mind. Keep your peace. Allow the Holy Spirit to move through your self-control. And watch what the Holy Spirit will do in the life of your child and build in you. Because when you, when you have children, it's all about you growing up, not them. It's all about you growing up. Because if you'll become a real grown-up, not just old, but a real grown-up, they'll become better people. Let's pray. Father, I'm asking for your grace and mercy upon everybody here. Empower and bless all the mamas. Encourage them. Where they find themselves falling, I pray you would support them. Where they find themselves weak, you be their strength. And give them a vision for their children that they don't have presently. Let them see things that allow them to stand in the midst of all the circumstances that tell them contrary thoughts.